This is White Sox Weekly, your two-hour all-access pass to everything White Sox. Live in the air, deep to right, it is gone! This is a presentation of the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Now here's your host, Connor McKnight. Welcome in to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I am Connor McKnight. Sorry to interrupt your trade conversation, although it was a good one if you were listening to us on the ESPN flagship. Uh, Talking a little bit about the trade deadline and the possible locations, destinations for Shohei Otani. I think we might spend a little bit of time on the trade deadline coming up here later on in the show, but we got a White Sox and Twins game Later this afternoon, Dylan Cease and Sonny Gray are the starters. We've got the lineups. Uh, We know who's in. We know who's out. That's actually a more uh, compelling story, I think, at this point. get to that in just a minute. Talk with White Sox third baseman and sometimes first baseman and all-the-time slugger Jake Berger a little bit later on in the show. Jake is uh, Jake's availability subject to the workout, of course, at Target Field. Figure he may join the show right around 4 or so. So be sure to make sure you're tuned in. Be sure to make sure, yeah, just tune in around 4 o'clock. I think we'll talk with Jake right about then. Sox fans, don't forget the Wintrust Crosstown Series heads to the south side this Tuesday, July 25th, and Wednesday, July 26th. Great lower-level tickets are still available Secure yours at WhiteSox.com. Should be a very warm series. Great weather for baseball. Awesome opportunity to get outside. Enjoy yourself at 35th and Shields and watch the White Sox take on the Cubs. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number here on White Sox Weekly. This is your show as much as it is anything else. So you got questions, concerns, trade deadline thoughts you want to share about the White Sox? This is the show for you. I think we will spend a little bit of time talking about the upcoming deadline, about what the White Sox may, may not do, who they may or may not trade, what they may or may not be looking in return in some of those trades. But it's still a little bit early, and and that's not so much because of the calendar. I'd be happy if I were running a ball club that was looking to either acquire talent or move some off the roster in some hypothetical Major League Baseball franchise. I'd be looking to trade at this point, but not many are. We haven't seen a whole lot of moves made. Shoot, the A's trading reliever Shintaro Fujinami to the Baltimore Orioles the other day qualifies as maybe the biggest move that's gotten made so far. And while that could be an impactful trade for Baltimore as they try and hang on to the top spot in the AL East, I think they'd probably like a few more arms in order to secure themselves a playoff spot, which they've been looking for for, I think, since 2016. Uh, as for you know who may be dance partners and who may be selling and who may be buying, those are all fair conversations. And as, you know, we just kind of interrupted Doug Glanville's musings on where show Aotani may or may not or how he may or may not be traded. I, I think that's kind of part and parcel of that conversation as well. Still, though, let's focus on the White Sox. I mean, if you want to talk a little White Sox at the deadline here and, and look forward, ask questions who you think might be moving, feel free. That's what we're here for. But today, we got a ball game, and the lineup is out. It once more does not have Andrew Vaughn in the lineup. He fouled a ball off of his foot. 
in game number one against the Mets last weekend. He did not play the next two. Sox had an off day and then a series uh, just this last week, uh, middle of the week, I should say, that he did was not able to play it. So with Vaughn out, it's a bone bruise. It sounds like it's day-to-day for him. Pedro Grafol telling White Sox beat reporters and, and our own Len Casper uh, that it's a bone bruise and it's going to be mostly day-to-day for Vaughn means that Yasmani Grandal is at first base today instead of Vaughn. Jake Berger, who's, again, going to join the show in just a little bit here, has third base. Let's give you the one through nine, shall we? Andrew Benintendi leads off. He's in left. He's been very good. Since the, since the White Sox came back from the All-Star break. Tim Anderson hitting second. He has also been very good since the White Sox have come back from the All-Star break. Luis Robert Jr. hits third. Eloy Jimenez fourth. He's the designated hitter. Robert in center field, of course. Yasmani Grandal, like I mentioned, hitting five and playing first base. Jake Berger hitting six and playing third. Elvis Andrews at second base. Oscar Colas is in right field, batting eight. And Sebi Zavala bats nine. He'll do the catching. White Sox, remember, are hanging on to three catchers on the roster. Carlos Perez, who got a pinch hit job uh, and an appearance as a starter just the other night against the Mets, his first start behind the plate this season. Looked pretty good back there. Is the third catcher on that roster, so the White Sox have some flexibility there. Also, a roster move for the White Sox today. Joe Kelly is back. Prior to today's game, Kelly was reinstated from the 15-day injured list. Brian Shaw, who's gotten into a whole bunch of games while with the White Sox, was designated for assignment. Shaw, you'll remember, was a non-roster invitee to White Sox camp like day before or maybe the day camp opened. Uh, He did not make the team out of camp but re-signed in the minors with the White Sox. Wouldn't be terribly surprised if that's something that's on the table for Shaw and the Sox again, but he has been designated for assignment. He could just accept the assignment for that matter. Uh, Kelly's been on the injured list since July 5th with right elbow inflammation. And really, you know, it's a it's a good thing that he's back as quickly as he is. July 5th to July 22nd with the All-Star break in between is a pretty minimal stay for Kelly on the IL given right elbow inflammation was the initial diagnosis. Anytime you see elbow inflammation, that leads to some worry. you got to make sure that that issue is resolved before you get back to throwing and really amping things up. Kelly's back and ready to go. He's 1-4 with a 4.82 ERA, 15 earned runs in 28 innings of work. He does have one save, 10 holds, 37 strikeouts, over 29 relief appearances this season. It's been a bit of an up-and-down season for Kelly, as it has for a lot of White Sox players, but there was a stretch, really two of them, where Kelly was about as dominant as you get, and when he's got the good command... That stuff plays at any ballpark across the country. When he's a little wobbly, there are a couple of things that, uh, you know, batters that get walked, guys that get hit, that kind of thing. But often, Kelly's not being hit hard. It's it's free passes and extra runners that do him in when he is uh, a little bit off his game. Still adding Kelly back to the bullpen, a good thing for the White Sox. They are 41-58. and 58 coming into the game tonight. No secret that it's been a disappointing season so far. Still some time to turn things around, but it is getting late. Uh, The series against the Minnesota Twins is the fourth-place White Sox against the first-place Twins. And while yesterday's game went the way of Minnesota, 9-4 the final, there's still opportunities to make a little bit of noise here. At very least, 
play spoiler to a team at the top of the division, the Twins, who has been battling to stay right around 500. They're only three games over at 51 and 48. Uh, and a game or two, game and a half, three games at most over the last two months above the Cleveland Guardians. Guardians had first place in the division by about a half a game for three days or so just after the All-Star break, but the Twins snatched that back. It's It's been a battle back and forth between those two teams right around 500, and the Tigers, meanwhile, have been there above the White Sox for most of this season as well. I, I think as you look forward for this club, there is an opportunity, as as unfortunate as it might be, for the White Sox to retool a little bit with the deadline coming up on August 1st. That's what happens when teams have a mathematical record the way the White Sox do and have a, you know, three teams to jump, the Tigers, the Guardians, and the Twins to get to first place in the division. This has been the conversation around this team for some time. However, I think the last couple of weeks since coming back from the All-Star break is kind of instructive as to what this team is and what this team may need going forward. I look at the last, you know, since the All-Star break ended for Tim Anderson. I look at the last couple of games, you know, the Atlanta series on for Andrew Benintendi, and I think, okay, that looks a lot more like the top of the White Sox lineup that I envisioned that everybody envisioned coming into the season. That didn't happen. Benintendi got off to a slow start, hampered by a wrist issue with Pedro Grafal disclosed a couple of weeks ago before the All-Star break. Benintendi, since coming back to play, since the White Sox, since everybody's gotten back on the schedule since the All-Star break, is hitting 375. hit the homer last night on the first pitch of the game. He's been on base at a 412 clip, and if you expand Benintendi's run, it's just since the start of June. The, it, I'm not just cherry-picking here. It's been really good over almost two full months now. A 319 average with a 389 on base, slugging 424. Not the kind of you know corner outfield production that is stereotypical of that, you know, that position necessarily. But Benintendi was brought in here to hit a lot of doubles. Maybe clock 10 to 15 home runs. That power has been a little bit lacking. Wrist issue, though, we, we kind of described that some. But this has been the kind of offensive production I think the White Sox definitely envisioned as somewhat of a floor, if not just a little bit above, for Andrew Benintendi. They expected good things for him in terms of bat-to-ball contact, in terms of shaking things up at the top of the lineup, moving things around at the top of the lineup, a couple of steal opportunities for Benintendi as well. And since getting into that top spot, he's been a pace setter. He's been a table setter for this team. Tim Anderson's move here over the last couple of weeks has been a little bit slower with a uh, prolific rise here since the All-Star break ended. It's obviously been a very difficult season for TA, whether that's been uh, whether it's been on the field or, or at times, you know, defensively as well. I guess I should say at the plate or defense, uh, offensively as well. Since the start of the second half, the unofficial second half, with that series against Atlanta, Tim's 10 for 31. It's a 370, pardon, 10 for 27. That's a 370 batting average. With a 452 on base percentage. And while he has yet to slug, what is really important, he's yet to hit a home run this year. What is really important is, from my vantage point, is that Tim Anderson is able to use all fields just like he has been 
since 2018, 2019, that he's been able to go to right with some authority, and then he's been able to pull the ball a little bit in the air some, too, to left field. 2019 saw a good power number from Tim Anderson. If you look back, and I think you know all across the league, it saw really good power. Look nowhere else other than these twins. 2019, 18 home runs for TA. 2018, 20 home runs for Tim Anderson. We played with a somewhat different baseball here. And a lot of right-handers are figuring out over last year and this year. This is an issue we talked about with the White Sox last season with a lot of right-handed hitters who had power going out to the opposite field, out to right. That kind of dried up some for the White Sox. And offensively, it was an issue that halted them from getting to the point that they wanted to be in terms of run scoring, in terms of home run production. For Tim, though, you look at the overall player, you want him to be able to use right field, and whether it's use those legs going down the line or whether it's just being able to take advantage of defenses deployed with with a runner on or something like that, being able to use that right side was exactly the kind of strategy that Pedro Grafal had in mind when he made the switch Andrew Benintendi into the leadoff spot and Tim Anderson batting second. That has been effective here, especially since the Sox got back to play in this particular road trip against the Braves and against the Mets and against the Twins now this weekend. And I hope to see that going forward here. The reason I bring up those two guys at the top of this lineup as we get closer and closer to a decision point for this White Sox team, General Manager Rick Hahn has pointed out, well, he's been asked a handful of times, and has pointed out that while there's been times the White Sox have played a little bit better baseball. There is absolutely a deadline looming here, August 1st being the trade deadline, that's going to determine some things. The long-term future, Han has said, is obviously what's always kept in mind by a front office. But when I see the guys at the back of the baseball card starting to play again, I start to think that maybe this ball club, definitely this ball club is is much closer to making a few moves, you know, the kinds of moves that you have to make when you're 17 games under 500 and a handful of games off the pace in the Central with a playoff opportunity there, but it's still a little bit of a long shot for the White Sox, unfortunately. I start to think that the moves you make are moves that might be sort of the midterm trades, right? If, if this is what you're looking at, if this is how you're checking out the expiring contracts, the guy's going to be free agents. Lucas Giolito, for instance. I mean, let's not run around the bush here all afternoon. It's been written about quite a bit. The teams are beginning to take a look at Lucas Giolito. He is at the end of his team control with the White Sox. They have gone back and forth about long-term contracts, according to reports, a couple of times, but nothing has materialized. Lucas has expressed his desire to stay with the White Sox, which you know, feels good, quite frankly, if you, you cover this team, you root for this team, you like to hear that. But the business of baseball is inexorable, right? It is it is what kind of moves this game forward. And Lucas, as, as much as anybody else who may be on the block here at deadline time, is the kind of guy that gets traded to contenders and hopefully makes a run and a ring. And then perhaps signs back with the White Sox after the offseason, you know? It is it is those kinds of trades that I find myself focused on in terms of, all right, things need to move, you get that, 
how do you make those assets, how do you make those players recoup the right kind of value for the 2024 team, for the 2025 team? Because from my perspective, and we'll see what the rest of this division does here over the next couple of weeks, but the way I look at it is this division, which has been very gettable all season long, will likely remain gettable in 2024. And for that reason, I see guys like Tim Anderson and Andrew Benintendi and Luis Robert and Jake Berger and Andrew Vaughn, for instance, all as guys that can be big parts of a 2024 team that makes a push at an AL Central Division title. Again, after a bit of a a retrenching, a regrouping. I think that's where my head's at. Love to know where yours is at here as we get closer and closer to August 1st. That is the topic of conversation around Major League Baseball. Another one is the 2023 Hall of Fame class inducted today in Cooperstown. We'll talk a little bit about those players and broadcasters getting nods in the Hall of Fame. A big congratulations to them and their families on a huge, huge, momentous weekend. We'll hear from Jake Berger in just a little bit. He's got workouts going on at Target Field, but he's scheduled to be our guest here on White Sox Weekly. We'll let you know what's coming up right after this in 10 seconds. We pause it here for station identification. Live from the Old National Bank State Street Studio. This is WMVP WSHEHD2 Chicago, a good karma brand's radio station. Sox fans, 2024 ticket plans are available now. Be here for the biggest matchups and exciting new promotions throughout the season, including opening day on March 28th. Our ticket plans include great benefits, such as flexible payment plans, savings on single games, great seat locations, and more. For more information, visit whitesocks.com slash 2024. That's whitesocks.com slash 2024. When we come back here on White Sox Weekly, get you updated on some of the other injuries for the White Sox guys who could be coming back pretty soon. I'm Connor McKnight on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Pitch coming and a swing and a blast out into deep left center field and it is off the top of the wall. Two runs will score. It's a double for Berger. Chuck, I had a double burger. That's the gif I like to tweet a lot when Jake hits hits, uh, doubles and drives in runs. It's from Goodwill Hunting. You know, Casey Affleck's in the back of the car and and Ben Affleck's driving the thing and he puts his burger up there on the dash. You put your burger on layaway, just like your mother bought her couch, that kind of thing. You remember the movie. If you haven't seen it, if you're too young... Go watch Goodwill Hunting. It's fantastic. This is White Sox Weekly, by the way. It's it's not a movie review show. Although, you know, we could spend some time doing it. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number here on White Sox Weekly. We will be joined by Jake Berger momentarily. Uh, but I can tell you this. You should be at Guaranteed Rate Field on Friday, July 28th for our next post-game concert sponsored by Tito's Handmade Vodka. Uh, don't miss your chance to see country music artist Jake Owen after the White Sox take on the Guardians at 6.10 p.m. Fans must have a game ticket to attend the concert. And to purchase your ticket, visit whitesox.com slash concert. That's whitesox.com slash concert. Jake just missed a grand slam the other day. That was a wild game against the Mets, 11-10. to 10. The final there, Sox nearly came all the way back. They had the tying and uh, go-ahead runs. 
uh, on base before Tim Anderson uh, grounded out to end the ball game. Uh, a game that got away for sure, but a game also that, you know, they came back to get into. And I think that's something that Pedro Grafal has pointed out about his guys, you know, pretty much week in and week out. Even though some results have been disappointing, there is an ability that this team has or a resilience, I guess, that this team has. When things get cooking, they don't really let the baton drop if they can help it. I mean, they just they kind of keep pushing. And I think that kind of mentality uh, has has lifted spirits at times. I think that kind of mentality has, you know, kind of underlined for a new coaching staff what it is these players are capable of and what they're aiming toward. Uh, tonight, the focus is on splitting this series, or or at least uh, splitting the first two against the Twins. you got the day game on Sunday, of course. Two good ones on the bump, Dylan Cease for the White Sox and Sonny Gray for the Twins. Mentioned earlier in the show that Andrew Vaughn is not in the lineup. Yes, Monty Grandal's got first base, and Jake Berger is at third. We're hoping to talk with Jake Berger in just a bit. We've got some phone issues here, so apologies all around. Um, what we did see, too, are a couple of injury updates for the White Sox here over the last few days, and I would expect to get a few more here in the next hour or so when Pedro Grafol speaks to White Sox beat reporters. We'll uh, we'll wait on those, though, because I do believe we have Jake Berger on the phone. Hey, Jake, you hear us all right? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. All right, fantastic. Well, that's a good start on a radio interview. I'm told... That the whole audio thing is uh, it's important when you when you speak to people on the radio, so it's good. Uh, how yeah, you feeling, my man? How's the swing right now? And how is uh, how's first and third? How's bouncing back and forth between the corners? Yeah, the uh, you know swing swing's feeling good. Uh, obviously, bad night last night, um, but you know those happen. Um, Joe Ryan's a, a great pitcher, um, you know. So for me personally, it's about. Uh, back in today and kind of forgetting about uh yesterday but um you know overall it feels good um you know i'm still bouncing back and forth between first and third and uh, you know just uh definitely have to win uh two or three here in minnesota and we uh we feel that urgency for sure len and dj on the broadcast i think night before last uh had a chance to talk about you defensively a little bit over at third base and i caught jason and steve doing the same thing uh jason and gordon actually doing the same thing you know, really just kind of pointing out that your defense over at third has has noticeably uh, gotten a lot better. You, you look more comfortable, perhaps. The throws are, are in command. To what do you attribute that? What work, what drill, what coaches, uh, what inside you has kind of pushed you to that point? Yeah, I started uh, working with Eddie Rodriguez from uh, day one when I was in spring training. I got there about a week early uh, before we started full camp. And, you know, I pulled Eddie aside and I'm like, Hey, look, like this is, this is an area I really want to take pride in. And, um, you know, I want to be stubborn about putting in as much work as I possibly can without exhausting myself. So let's get to it. And, uh, you know, sure enough, Eddie was on board with that. And, uh, you know, we worked uh, every single day and still work every single day to keep improving there. And, um, you know, it's, it's been really, really nice to work with him and, uh, you know, just have his confidence in me and, and Pedro's confidence in me. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a lot of work. That's for sure. It's, uh, there's not many eyes on us when we're putting in the work, but, um, you know, I, I try and get as much as I can in without, uh, you know, being detrimental to me at, at game time. 
Yeah, so Jake, that's talking with Jake Berger here on White Sox Weekly. That's always been an interesting, you know, kind of idea for me. You, you know, say you're over at third and you're you're working on infield stuff. You you want to get a couple of looks at really difficult ground balls, you know, whatever difficult is for for you or whatever player we're talking about. But you also don't want to just practice impossible stuff. You are going to see some routine things. How do you divvy up, you know, what's important to work on, what's going to you know, kill you and sap your legs for the game? How do you push just a little bit and then and then bring that back some to make sure that you can, you know, hit a couple of homers once you get to game time? Yeah, one thing that Eddie uh, brought over um, that he implemented, and I think we've posted some videos, the White Sox posted some videos about it, was the uh, Little Red Machine. Um, and, you know, those, there's three different types of balls. There's a, uh, there's a ball that's really light. There's a ball that is basically somewhat of the same weight of a regular baseball, uh, sort of close, and then one's heavy. And so um, the idea is to create as many different variables and as many different hops as you can. And like sometimes it's going to be a routine ground ball off of the red machine. Sometimes it's going to be a hard one. So, um, you know, keeping, keeping that variable in there, and Eddie's done a great job of, uh, you know, creating those variables, not just from that machine, but uh, in general, you know, he'll – have some days where, you know, we, we have our backs faced to them. And uh, right when we hear the, the ball off the bat, we jump around, turn around, and try and pick it up where it is to create as much realistic uh, variable as you can, you know, without actually being in the game. Jake, we were talking a little bit uh, as we were kind of making sure that the phone connection was working about that 11-10 game to the Mets. You know, you guys fall short, but the the go-ahead and – sorry, tying and go-ahead and runs are on in the ninth. You were a big factor in that ball game. You guys have had a handful of those. You're right around 500 in one-run games. And it's weird to think of a game that had 21 runs scored in it as a one-run game, but there we were. To what do you attribute that, that in your team, the fact that you're – you know, even when you're a little bit farther than shouting distance, you guys have pushed back to make things close, regardless of whether it comes out your way or not. Yeah, I mean, uh, Pedro's, uh, you know, preach just play the game hard. And you never know what happens, and uh, you know, we 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 realize that uh, you know, baseball is nine innings; it's not just one. So, um, you know, if we have a bad bad inning defensively or uh, on the mound, you know, we uh, we feel like we can respond, and obviously. Um, you know, it's been uh, it's been frustrating with the results in those one run games, and you know, but that, that's baseball, and uh, you just got to keep pushing and keep keep taking it pitch by pitch. Uh, you know, you can't you, if you go down big in the first inning, you can't look at the ninth inning. Um, you know, you have to look at at the top of the second, and uh, you know, attack each at bat uh, in the top of the second, and uh, it goes from there. We were having a conversation uh, on the broadcast last night. We have a an Ask Len and Ask DJ segment every night, and a fan you know, tweets in, and, and we ask the question that the fan wanted of Len. And I thought it was a pretty good one. I thought I'd ask you, would you rather – this was the question that, that, that we got asked on the air. Would you rather have a player in your lineup – this is, I guess, if you were like running a team, if you were a GM – have a player in your lineup that is guaranteed to homer 100 times – but never reach base any other way, or a guy that's going to walk 300 times, but never get on base any other way? You know, I think it's uh, it's an interesting point. Um, I think it's probably based on what, what your team needs at the moment. If you need an on-base guy, you know, you, you want to guarantee the 300 walks, and if you need a slugger that can drive in some runs, um, you know, it's uh, it's – 
that's at least a hundred runs, you know. Uh, right. So, I I think it's uh, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting thought, and, uh, and I think that parlays into to me personally. You know, I, I know that I can hit the ball out of the ballpark, but uh, you know, I need to start start walking some more and being a little more disciplined. And uh, you know, I've, I've recently started really uh, diving into that and trying to <laughs> do it myself because you know walks. Walks are, you know, they're boring to a lot, a lot of fans, but you know, I think that, that makes or breaks the season if you uh, if you can walk more. Man, that's it's really interesting that you look at it that way because that was my counter. Because everybody could go, yeah, a hundred home runs and you you live with anything else, but you know, walks can benefit other people in the lineup as well. And I guess home runs can, but you're guaranteed to see four pitches from that starter or reliever or whatever. That begins to wear him out. If you're walking 300 times, you're walking, you know, probably twice or three times. You know, you're walking multiple times in a game, so you're doing it over and over. I think it's interesting you've got that perspective about, you know, the walk in general, whether it's a, a guy walking 300 times like we made up or, or in your game. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is. It's an interesting question for sure. Um, you know, that's uh, – I think that the, the 300 walk guy, you know, it's it's – uh, beneficial to the entire team, and uh, I'm not saying the home, the home, hundred home runs isn't, you know, because like I said, at the very least, you're getting a hundred runs produced, um, you know. But if if you're if a guy's getting on base three hundred times, you know, it's twice a game. Um, you know, I, I think that that bodes well for the rest of the offense. You you mentioned that you've been starting to work on or or have been working on you know, trying to get more walks. That is so much easier said than done. How have you mm-hmm. gone about that process? Yeah, I mean, obviously, way easier said than done because uh, the the big variable is the uh, the guy in the bump. You know, um, if he's uh, attacking you right in the zone or uh, you know, kind of nibbling on the edges. But um, you know, I've worked with Mike Tozar a lot, talked to Pedro a lot, um, and you know, a lot of it is just uh, work and strike the ball pitches that um, you know I tend to chase. Whether it's a fastball that looks like it's at the top of the zone and, and goes up out uh like i chased last night or uh the sliders that are down and away um you know that look like a strike on the outside corner and then obviously taper off so um it's a lot of stuff with that like machine you know we'll, we'll be able to uh work the machine where okay there'll be in 10 pitches there there's going to be two pitches to hit and eight pitches to not swing at and uh you know be be aggressive on the take but um you know take them so uh, it's been a lot of stuff like that, and just having conversations about how a guy's uh, going to attack me, and um, you know, for for me, it's uh, with the with the way I hit the ball, you know, it's uh, if I can get the the pitches in the zone uh, more often than not, you know, I'll be able to do more damage, and um, so that's kind of been the the focus and, and the thought process behind it. Jake, appreciate it as always. Good luck tonight against the Twins. Thank you, Connor. Appreciate. it. Absolutely. It's White Sox third baseman Jake Berger. That's uh it's an interesting detail on the process there of of trying to walk more. Like like I said to Jake and like Jake reemphasized there, it is so much easier said than done. But that idea of a pitching machine that's gonna give you in ten pitches two to hit and eight to take, that's an interesting exercise, I, I think. I, I would guess, I think, that that's the eye pitch machine that you've heard a lot about whether it's from uh, Jason Benetti on the television broadcast or, or Landon DJ on the radio broadcast, it's been brought up a handful of times. And I would imagine that on White Sox Weekly, while I've been out, uh, we've talked about it here on the show too. 
that machine is is really making its way around to not only just White Sox hitters, but a lot of hitters in and around the game. Um, around the, the hitting tunnel on the other side, the visiting side of Guaranteed Rate Field, you'll often see a, a similar machine for whatever team's in town. And the idea, if you've just hearing about it for the first time, the idea is that machine is a it's a pitching machine where you can input a bunch of different breaks on pitches. And by doing so, you can kind of engineer into the machine the kind of stuff that you're going to see from that day's starter or reliever or anybody in baseball for that matter, right? I mean, you could if you wanted. Um, I don't know if you could do it with a knuckleball, but I guess you could do, you know, Nolan Ryan's fastball by going back through the tape and and uh, mathing out the break, the rise, the run, all that kind of stuff, plugging into the machine, and then you could go take a couple of swings against Nolan Ryan's fastball. You know, if you were a masochist or something, if you wanted to go out there and face one of the most difficult pitches in baseball history, you could do it right there on the machine. But the idea that it will throw a particular pitch for a ball. You know, you, you get to the game early or whatever and you see batting practice or what have you and it's, you know, these guys, these these coaches throwing stuff for the most part right down the pipe to these hitters. But that is the, you know, that's the BP portion of the game. There's so much more especially nowadays that goes into uh working on a player's pitch selection, working on by virtue of these machines or other ways, uh, a leave it or hit it kind of selection process. A, you know, what do you do on a pitch that's on the outer third when you need to drive in runs, right? The pitch that's there, but you're in a two strike count and you've got a man on. How do you hit this particular pitch, a difficult one, maybe even a pitcher's pitch for some damage? Now, even those scenarios in practice are going to be different than in the game, right? Jake even mentioned it part of the equation in working a walk has a lot to do with the guy that's on the bump, right? If he's not willing to throw you a ball outside the strike zone, it's very difficult to work a walk unless you've got, I don't know, Angel Hernandez behind the plate or something like that, or whatever umpire might be off his game on not taking shots, although, you know, it is what it is. The The idea that you're just going to magically... You know, be patient up there and Kevin Euclid your way into a walk in, in four pitches or five pitches is, is not the case. I've said it a bunch. We call a walk a free pass. It's often not free. Rarely are walks just free. There's the intentional pass, right? And then you just wave the guy down to first base. And there are some days where the guy you're facing, whether he's just come in out of the bullpen or maybe he's starting his day and he's absolutely wild, doesn't give you anything close. And then you're headed down to first base, and you go, well, that was, that was easy. That was a freebie. I'm on first base. But for the most part, you've got to work walks. Your prior reputation earns walks. Jake Berger's power, right, where he's hit those home runs and the fact that the exit velocity when he gets the baseball is so preposterously up there, that in and of itself is going to dictate where pitchers are trying to work you. So you can take that part of the strike zone away, the fun part of the strike zone, the strike zone you want the pitch in, and say, well, I'm I'm likely not going to be getting stuff there, at least not on purpose. So how do I look in other places to do damage? How do I look around the strike zone to make sure that I can you know, cover the plate and be productive for this team? And if it's off the plate, take and work a walk. 
That's something the White Sox as an offense up and down, not just Jake, uh, could be a lot better at this year, quite frankly. Um, Something that they are working on incessantly uh, and something that is, quite obviously, a very difficult thing to improve on a day-to-day basis. That's something that takes, in, in a lot of cases, years to improve upon if it's not already a natural skill set of a player. There are certainly guys, I think of Andrew Vaughn as one of them, uh, Zach Remillard is one of them, who has a good understanding of where the strike zone is and where it ought to be and how it changes during a game and trying to attack their pitch. Whether you are able to successfully attack that pitch or not is another conversation altogether and a and, and, as, and another skill set that's in some ways not even attached to the pitch discipline, to the plate discipline of a hitter. It's a difficult game, that's for sure, and hitting is is probably the most difficult part of it. 312-332-3776. We appreciate Jake Berger's time here on the show. Uh, I mentioned before we had Jake on, we were going to touch on some of the injury issues for the White Sox, some guys coming back, hopefully, from the IL soon. We'll do that after a break. Uh, your phone calls as well. I'm Connor McKnight. you got White Sox Weekly on the ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Recap the game, Cap and Jay Hood, weekday mornings at 7. This is White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. Just got done talking with Jake Berger as the White Sox are preparing to play the Twins in Minneapolis this afternoon, this evening, I should say. Uh, second game of a three-game set. It's a 6:15 first pitch. We'll start the pregame show at 5:40, a little over an hour and 20 minutes from now, a little under an hour and 20 minutes from now, and then Len and DJ uh, take things over right at 6:05. We'll get you set for the Dylan Cease and Sonny Gray matchup this evening. If you missed the interview with Jake Berger, you can go download the ESPN Chicago app. All the shows of White Sox Weekly are, all of our shows and White Sox Weekly are downloadable at your leisure right there on the ESPN Chicago app. If you missed one or want to go listen to it or want to send it to your friends or maybe you're Jake Berger and you want to hear what you said again, you can download the app and then download the show. Also, attention students, don't miss your chance for exclusive tickets to the Trust Crosstown Series as the Sox take on the Cubs July 25th and 26th. Take advantage of our student ticket offer, Student Steals, and sign up today to register. Text STUDENT to 244-769. That's 244-769. Or visit whitesocks.com slash student. Got an update as we were talking with Jake. We are just bringing him on the show, actually. And Daryl Van Scowen of the Chicago Sun-Times, who covers the White Sox and does a darn good job of it, tweeted this as the scribes are talking to Andrew Vaughn. The tweet reads thusly, Andrew Vaughn, bone bruise on left foot, walking gingerly. Sore when he moves, wearing a walking boot at times. That's what makes it feel the best, Vaughn said. Keeps it stabilized. So, that's a pretty deep bone bruise, I would guess. It's been a while since I've had a bone bruise. Certainly not had to slap a walking boot on a bone bruise or anything, but then again, I was nowhere near a professional athlete. Pedro Grafol told reporters yesterday that Vaughn was kind of day-to-day, so it does it, that, that would kind of connect the dots there, meaning that Vaughn's walking boot is basically just to take the pressure off and promote healing as opposed to, you know, uh, prevent future injury or or torsion or torque or anything like that that would help or hurt I guess uh, you know pull at that bruise a little bit and 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 make the bleeding continue in there at least that'd be my guess that's that's a tough one for for Vaughn 
And it's been a little bit of a tough season for Andrew Vaughn. But one of the things, and Len Casper, Pedro Grafol talked about this on a pregame show, I want to say during this series in Atlanta, is that Vaughn has been able to play a lot this year. You'll remember in his rookie season, 2021, and last year, down the stretch, last two months of the season or so, sore legs and a, and a sore back really kind of halted Vaughn from finishing the season strong. And that was, you know, of... It, it, it irked him. It annoyed Andrew Vaughn. He, especially uh, having now played first base all season and not having to be asked to play the outfield, something he did uh, as, as best he could to tough results for sure, but he's not necessarily an outfielder, and that's why the White Sox have him at first base now, among other reasons. You've, you've got a guy at his home position that is hopefully, when this bone bruise subsides, going to experience what it is to have played as full a 162 as he could. Now, for that reason, as much as anything else, I'd really love to see this bone bruise get knocked out quickly here. The White Sox do have an off day coming up on Monday. Uh, Pedro, so far, we haven't seen anything or heard anything recently. Uh, Pedro has kind of said day-to-day for Vaughn. Uh, that's why the White Sox have resisted an IL move for him, though he's missed the last four games and will miss tonight as well. Uh, you would hope that that either tomorrow is in play or that homestand, the Cubs and Guardians, next week, Tuesday through Sunday, is going to be very much in play for Andrew Vaughn. And if it's not, you know, you would you would expect a roster move of some kind there, with Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger likely taking spots at or starts rather at first base. Um, third base could be, and this is kind of where we get into the injury update portion of the show. Third base could well be Yoan Moncada when the White Sox come back home. He said. With trepidation, it sounded like when Pedro Grafal updated everybody on what Moncada was, you know, kind of feeling and looking like at AAA Charlotte, that it might be five or six more games at AAA in, in rehab work. That was a couple of nights ago, and Moncada has played uh, about six games so far. He did skip one. It was uh, two days ago, memory serves correctly. The lineup for the Knights is not out yet, but we'll keep checking to see. I, you know, Moncada with the back issue has obviously been... Missing uh, for, for much more of the season than than he wanted to be, than the White Sox wanted him to be. You saw at the beginning of the year with the hot start he got off to, the kind of difference maker that, that Yohan Moncada has been when he's been healthy. When he's not been, um, it's it's been a difficult thing for Yohan. That swing, whether it's right-handed or left, really does tend to get, I don't know a better way to put I'm sure it's a lot more painful than this when, when, he, when you see it happen, but it gets halted, especially on check swings where Yoan is trying to lay off something on the outer third uh, usually as a, as a right-handed swing it can really grab him and, and you see the effects of that throughout the game. Not to his credit, he's, he's tried to stay in games uh, to keep himself in it, to, to fight for his team all that kind of stuff, even while dealing with this, um, this protruding disc in his back, that was the injury that set him down for the very first time this season and, and is the kind of issue that he's dealing with here uh, somewhat perpetually this season, it sounds like. But you would hope that the White Sox can get Yoan Moncada back for a an end-of-season run here just so that, at, at the very least, 
he's got some sort of runway into 2024, some kind of proof point that, yeah, this is working. I can swing it. I'm, I'm able to play up here. I'm healthy up here. I can play defense up here. I can swing up here. All that kind of stuff, to me, it seems, would be important to end the season. To that end, I think it's even more important, and, and Pedro Grafal has alluded to this, that the White Sox not rush Yoan Moncada in, in any circumstance because it, whether that was done before, whether he was kind of pushing forward or reticent to go on the IL, you know, all those things are understandable as you're a ball player trying to win ball games. you got to be on the field in order to do it. You you want to try and knock this out as, as much as possible so that you don't have um, a, a check swing kind of halt the progress against, so that you don't have something that might you know, feel kind of minor, lead to something major. A couple other injury updates and, and some that we might be getting a little more updating on here in the next little bit. Liam Hendricks did throw a sim game the other day, uh, 17 pitches, it's very much a step-by-step kind of thing for Hendricks at this point. He's made that very clear. He's coming back from the elbow inflation issue. Inflammation, not inflation. That'd be weird if it was blowing up like a balloon. Although, you know, sometimes when guys get the inflamed elbow, it does kind of you know blow up on you. I, I don't think that's what Hendricks is dealing with right now. He did throw a sim game the other day. Uh, you hope he's able to come back. It's very much a step-at-a-time thing for Liam Hendricks. And I see how he feels the next day. Mike Clevenger did throw a sim game the other day in New York. I believe that was Sunday. Um, if it wasn't Sunday, that was his bullpen session, and he's thrown a sim game since. I would expect Clevenger uh, is headed out to a rehab assignment start with the Charlotte Knights somewhat soon here. Sox have been kind of sounding optimistic about Clevenger returning from that biceps issue, which looked so bad in Los Angeles back in June. This was, uh, I mean, it just, it just looked like the guy's arm had gone, right? I mean, it looks like what it looks like when an elbow blows or a shoulder explodes or a lat snaps off a bone or something like that. And thankfully, it, it wasn't any of those things, uh, but it was in, exceedingly painful and something that Clevenger had to deal with here, with the, the biceps uh, inflammation and fluid that resulted in that particular injury. The Sox could really use uh, at least one more starter kind of getting back into the mix here. And I, I say it that way because Michael Kopech is getting closer and closer toward a, a workload here that he's not been at yet. And depending on where the White Sox are over the next little bit and what they choose to, if they choose to trade, what they choose to trade, even just what the environment looks like, they may be in a situation where you're looking for more innings or more options, rather, to start games so that you can kind of alleviate whatever is, you know, the innings load, not the work necessarily, but just the innings load that remains for Michael Kopech the rest of the season. So to that end, getting Clevenger back as, as one of those guys to be in that rotation and do it is a pretty important thing. Those are kind of the big injury notes for the White Sox here over the last little bit. Hopefully, like I said, a little bit more of a of a clean look as to what's going on there. It's been a few days since uh, since Pedro Grafal has given updates on Liam Hendricks and on Mike Clevenger specifically. So hoping to hear a little bit more there. Could be a Sunday kind of thing as well. Oftentimes, uh, the White Sox are going to update those things off day Monday. So you know maybe you've got more opportunities there to kind of see how guys bounce back, get them back home. You know, throw them in the the home machines and see what looks on imaging and see what you know kind of things are, how things are feeling, how things are looking there. 
Uh, Want to get to the uh, the Hall of Fame weekend. Some really cool stuff going on there with some players going in and broadcasters going in that are obviously close to home and close to some players here at home as well. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit uh, about the Cease and Sonny Gray matchup coming up tonight. That should be a good one. I'm excited for it myself. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number. More White Sox Weekly when we return on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. It's simple. The ESPN Chicago app. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. Sox and Twins coming up in just a little bit this evening. We've got a 6:15 first pitch, 5:40 pregame show in just an hour. We'll get that rolling. Today's a. This is a very special weekend in Major League Baseball. We'll tell you about it in just a moment. Special weekend coming up for you, perhaps. Sox fans, from now through July 30th, save up to 40% off a patio party to select games with our summer patio offer. Take advantage of this amazing deal and enjoy a pregame two-hour all-you-can-eat-and-drink buffet to purchase your special patio party Visit whitesox.com slash patio offer. The Bertucci boys run the patio out there, and i got to tell you, they make one of the best cheeseburgers that I've had in quite some time. It's, it's, it's very good, and it doesn't need – you don't have to put anything on it. It's just the cheeseburger, the meat and the cheese, and I guess the bun. That's it. It's fantastic. I mean, you can put stuff on it if you want, but you don't have to. Maybe that's maybe the best part of the patio party. Maybe the best part of the uh, non-off-the-field baseball season – Right there before trade deadline weekend is the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. That took place today. Two players, Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff, were inducted into the Hall of Fame. They made their speeches in Cooperstown. And a broadcaster and a couple of writers uh, won awards and are put into the Hall of Fame thusly. We'll talk about each of them just a little bit. Some I know better than others. Uh, especially the broadcasters. We'll start with the guys uh, I'm not too familiar with, although Tigers beat writer John Lowe, who is uh, one of the award winners, the uh, the BBWAA Career Excellence Award winner. Uh, his name's something else in the past. I can't remember what it was. John Lowe is your favorite beat writer's favorite beat writer. He's got that kind of tag. Uh, Tigers fans know and love his stuff. Congratulations to John Lowe. Uh, Carl Erskine is receiving the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award, which re- recognizes an individual's extraordinary efforts to enhance baseball's positive impact on society. He played 12 seasons with the Dodgers from 48 to 59, and his post-baseball life included spending four decades as a volunteer and organizer for the Special Olympics. He was also a charter member of the Baseball Assistance Team, a charitable organization founded to confidentially help members of the baseball family who were in need of assistance with nowhere else to turn. I can think of very few other things as noble a work as those particular things. So congratulations to Carl Erskine uh, and his close and near for the induction into the Hall of Fame. Pat Hughes. Cubs radio play-by-play man for the last 41 years was inducted into Cooperstown. And I listen, let's put our partisan blinders aside for a brief moment, shall we? Yes, the Cubs play on the other side of the town. And yes, for many White Sox fans, that ball club is the hated rival of yours. I completely understand it. It's part of what makes baseball great. However, if you've had the opportunity to listen to Pat Hughes 
call a game, whether it be nationally broadcast, and he's called some of those over his 41-year career with the Cubs, and before that, uh, backing up Bob Euchre in Milwaukee. So those of you who have been uh, longtime baseball fans and around for a little while might remember Pat Hughes' work uh, after Bob Euchre would, would toss to him in the middle of games and he'd get a few innings there. Pat is is absolutely one of the best. A true soundtrack of summer, guys. A broadcaster's favorite. The way he does it is the way Pat Hughes does it. And I am just so thrilled for a guy who has been nothing but nice to me, full disclosure, uh, and nothing but nice to everybody he's met in this business. Pat Hughes going into the Hall of Fame today is uh, long-deserved and an awesome moment for you know those of us here in Chicago who, when the White Sox weren't on or the Cubs were playing day games, had an opportunity on the south side for sure to tune in and listen to a day Cubs game and hear Pat Hughes call it, even if you didn't want to hear anything about the Cubs. Hughes made that sound great, regardless of uh, of who he's worked with over the last little bit. I mean, obviously his partnership with Ron Santo is legendary. Some guys in between that. And I love Pat Hughes and Ron Coomer on a radio broadcast. They're absolutely terrific and funny and entertaining and knowledgeable about the game. So a big congratulations to our crosstown guy, Pat Hughes, Cubs play-by-play man for going into the Hall of Fame. Now, those are far from the only uh, far from the only guys going in. Two players going into the Hall of Fame. One of Darren Jackson's former teammates, Fred McGriff, was unanimously elected in baseball by the Contemporary Baseball Era Players Committee. In 2020, he fell off the ballot but was on all 16 ballots cast by the Contemporary Baseball Era Players Committee. And I think of Fred McGriff as kind of a, you know, listen, if you're of a certain age, my age, kind of that mid to late 30s or whatever, you'll remember the Tom Amansky videos. Maybe you were up late. Maybe you were staying home from school, skipping class and watching a movie. And the Tom Amansky instructional videos would come on and there would be Fred McGriff talking about how this is the oh this is the absolute this is the program for you right the whole thing but McGriff's career was so much more than appearing in that legendary commercial and by the way there is a fantastic I can't remember if it's a 30 for 30 I don't know if Brendan Riley our executive producer or uh, or Jake Cantu's producing can can look this up real quick and let me know I, I forget myself whether it was a 30 for 30 or just like an oral history that somebody like the AV club or the ringer did on McGriff and how he even appeared in that Tom Amansky video but McGriff career-wise is more than deserving I think of the Hall of Fame nod. 493 career home runs, and DJ tells a great story. He's told a lot of times on the air about how, you know, you look at a guy like Fred, he's, he's seven home runs away from 500, and you go, Freddie, hang on for another year, man. Hit your seven home runs. He played 27 games with the Rays in 2004, his final big league season. He hit two home runs in that year, and, and the way DJ tells it, Fred was, no, I'm good. It, it's not going to matter all that much. If I'm in, I'm in. If I'm not, I'm not. And, you know, I, I think McGriff probably to the detriment of sports writers um, who were voting on this. And I, I don't mean to take shots, but I do think that we've changed the way we elect our Hall of Famers here over the last little bit, and I think we do it better now than we used to. I, I, I just I got to say it. 500's a magic number, and he absolutely gets in if he has 500 on the, on the ballot. But this guy, I mean, you look at the a career 284 batting average, 
you know, a premier first baseman offensively and defensively for some time. Never won an MVP, but I, when you look at positions, and we'll talk about this when we talk about Scott Rowland and third baseman who don't get into the Hall of Fame. When you look at first base, I don't know that measuring up, especially in the era in which Fred McGriff played, you know what I'm talking about, 87 through, call it 98, 99, his prime years, his age 23 to age 35 seasons, there was a lot of help available, legitimate or not, to a lot of first basemen in Major League Baseball. And other guys, too. I don't mean to say it's just one position taking performance-enhancing drugs. We're talking about steroids. We don't have to really talk around it. You can talk about it. That was an issue in this game. And I think as we look back to players, I think, embodied by Fred McGriff, who got short shrift, who got second thought of um, in, this, in, in the realm of their position are now being considered in a different light for the Hall of Fame, and I think that is a very, very good thing. Personally, I regard the Hall of Fame as as much museum to baseball as it is the inner circle of greats. So when you tell the story of the game, can you tell it? I think Fred McGriff deserves to be in that telling of the story of the game. We'll take a phone call real quick and then uh, take a break. Maybe we'll um, we'll talk about Scott Rowland on the other side because I think there's something absolutely fascinating about third baseman and the Hall of Fame. They just do not get elected to baseball's Hall of Fame, and we're going to tell you why and why Scott Rowland deserved to be an HOF. But we'll head out to Willowbrook, 312-332-3776. That's the number. You can call it just like Owen has and hop on White Sox Weekly. Owen, what's on your mind, man? Hello, Connor. Thanks for taking the call. Um, you got it, man. Hey, just two things about the Hall of Fame. Uh, the first one was about uh, Hawk Harrelson. He got the Ford Frick thing during COVID, and I think they inducted him, but I don't think he really had a ceremony. Did you guys he, hit? I don't know if you know he if he did, ever did anything. He did, in fact. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to cut you off or anything, Owen. I want to get to your second thought okay. as well. He yeah. did, in fact. He was elected in the uh, or was given the award, the Ford C. Frick Award, prior to the 2020 season. The ceremonies and everything were postponed that year, obviously. Not safe to get a whole bunch of people together outdoors or not when we weren't going around with vaccines in 2020. And then uh, in 2021, he was given his day, everybody, the 21 inductees and award winners and 20 award uh, inductees and award winners had their moment there in Cooperstown. I actually remember because uh, Darren Jackson, who was Hawk's longtime television partner, flew out to uh, surprise Hawk out there at the Hall of Fame. The White Sox, if you remember, were in Milwaukee to face the Brewers that weekend. So I had a chance to, I, I just remember because I was working with Len and DJ had flown out and it was a really cool opportunity for DJ. DJ and a couple other White Sox um, contemporaries of Hawks to go out there and be with him as part of the Hall of Fame. It was uh, an epic, an epic speech, the way only Hawk does it. And I, I know it's on YouTube, Owen. You can go and, and take a look. And I'm pretty sure the Baseball Hall of Fame website has those cataloged as well. I don't know if that needs an MLB subscription or not. But it is there, and he had his moment. And you can go take a look at it next time you got some spare time, my man. It's fantastic. I'm- Thanks, thanks a lot. The other thing I wanted to say is, and you're right. I think, I think um, the requirements for as the game has changed has also changed, especially for pitchers because it used to be 300 wins or 3,000 or you know I think uh, 3,000 strikeouts or something like that. But a guy who I think is really well deserving of a Hall of Fame because he pitched innings, he set a record for going six innings consecutively was Mark Burley. Mark Burley 
did so many things in his career. And I think he was still one of the most underrated pitchers in the game during his time because he didn't throw 90 miles an hour, but he knew how to pitch. He knew how to field his position. Obviously, what is, what we all know what he did with perfect games and World Series. I think that guy is totally deserving of the Hall of Fame. I don't know if you do, but I think the requirements for pitching today and during his era really make Mark Burley deserving of it. Oh, and appreciate the phone call, my man. I think this is a fascinating conversation, and I, I do want to spend a little time on it. Here's here's what I can say off the jump, right? And we'll off, after the break, we'll get into kind of the numbers and the, the meat of the conversation and the, the weather Burley is deserving on a, on a numbers standpoint alone for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I don't think that should be the only way we elect our Hall of Famers, but it does matter, right? I mean, it, it, production matters after all. That's, that's what we're talking about here. I think I've, I know I've told this story before, and uh, I'll, I'll tell it again because Owen asked. When I was a young baseball reporter, uh, this was 2009, 2010, something like that, maybe my first full year on the beat. And I covered both teams, uh, both the north side and the south side, for another shop here in town. And I was often uh, sent over to the White Sox side because the station I was working for at the time was the home of White Sox baseball in that moment. And I remember Ozzie Guillen talking, you know, he was giving his pregame press conference. You know, everybody would come down to hear the Ozzie show, and it was fantastic. And, and the stuff that you would learn, especially, you know, the, the younger reporters like myself, like um, J.J. Stankovitz, who now covers the Indianapolis Colts, uh, guys who were, you know, younger in the game, and, and get Adam Hogue, who now covers the Bears for a couple of different publications, including CHGO. We were, we were all kind of there and sniffing around the beat and learning things, learning the ins and outs of how to cover a game and how to cover, you know, huge personalities and knowledgeable guys like Ozzie Guillen. So anyway, we're all down there with the, the salty old vets, Joe Callies and Scott Merkins and Scott Greggers and uh, Daryl Van Scowens, and we're talking, and, and Ozzie has kind of wrapped up his pregame press conference, but as, as you may, th- may expect, wasn't done talking, had more to say. And instead of putting the recorders away, he actually wanted, you know, kind of this stuff on the record. And I forget what prompted it. Might have been right around Hall of Fame weekend or something like that. I don't remember. I wish I could. But he just kind of said, I'll tell you, you think you think I'm crazy, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen here. And, we're, you know, we're all kind of listening. Okay, Ozzy, what do you got? And Ozzy says, Mark Burley's going to be a Hall of Famer. Mark Burley is going to be a Hall of Famer. And there was a laugh, you know? I mean, people chuckled, right? Because at the moment, again, I'm talking 2009-ish, 2010-ish, something like that. Burley would go on to pitch through 2013. He'd make an appearance or two in 2015 as well um, with the Blue Jays. Yeah, 2015 with the Blue Jays. And he's got five years left in his career, two years left at least in his White Sox career, depending on exactly which which year this was. And Ozzy's whole point was... This game, this is in 2010, this game is changing. It's already changed, Ozzy's saying. Guys don't go seven innings anymore. Guys don't log, his big argument was, guys, guys don't throw 200 innings anymore. And if you look at Burley, let's just say this is in 2010, right? He was on a run of nine straight seasons going 200 innings or more. And if you extend that, I believe he threw 200 innings or more in every season he pitched but two. His final year with the Blue Jays, where he threw 198 and two-thirds innings, 
pretty damn close to 200. And then his rookie season, where, as White Sox fans will remember, he only made three starts in 28 games. He was primarily a reliever coming in for the White Sox and only made three starts in uh, 28 games in total. So I'm not saying that just hitting the 200-inning mark for that many consecutive seasons makes Mark Burley a Hall of Famer. And that's not what Ozzie was saying at the time either. But what he was pointing out, and I think aptly so, was that what we ask our pitchers specifically to do needs to be considered when we start electing guys for the Hall of Fame. It is not Mark Burley's fault, or let's put it a different way. It is not, I'm just going to pick a guy on the White Sox roster right now. I am not by any stretch putting this guy in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Don't at me. Don't tweet at him. Don't make me go into the clubhouse on Tuesday when the White Sox play the Cubs and Dylan track me down and say, my God, what are you doing, man? But it is not Dylan Cease's fault that, you know, should his career end and he's being considered for the Hall of Fame, that he was only a six-inning guy or whatever, because that's what we ask our pitchers to do now, right? I don't think that should be held against the individual pitcher. I don't think we as a baseball Hall of Fame electorate, not that I hold a vote, and nor will I ever, but those of us who those those who do elect our Hall of Famers, I think that context matters quite a bit. Now, Burley's era, right? 2000 to 2015, I don't think encompasses all of the change, right? And and by saying that, it means I don't think that just the innings total, 3,283 and a third innings, with an ERA of 3.81, means that, yes, Mark Burley is a Hall of Famer. I do want to see other stuff on that resume. Maybe we'll talk about it when we hit the break. I do want to see other accomplishments, you know, like a World Series win, or like a a large season, single-season win total, or like Cy Young finishes. He finished fifth in the Cy Young voting in 2005, and that's the only time he appeared on the ballot, on the Cy Young ballot, I should say. Was an All-Star four different times, and a Gold Glover in four consecutive seasons. Uh, Pardon, an All-Star five times, I think I might have said four. So, those are good credentials, but they're not great credentials. But when we start judging Mark Burley on what he did that no one else did or very few others did, right? You still have your Roy's Halliday, you know, pitching, that kind of thing. Your Cliff's Lee, all that kind of stuff that's out there. That kind of stuff, I think, changes the conversation some for Mark Burley. And that's why, as you probably tell, this is a conversation I'm pretty passionate about. And that's why Mark Burley remaining on the Hall of Fame ballot, you got to catch, I believe it's 10% in order to stay on the Hall of Fame ballot. That's why that's so important to me. That's why I hope baseball Hall of Fame writers continue to vote Mark Burley to keep him on the ballot for the 10 years that he's eligible because I think this conversation allows for other very worthy Hall of Famers or maybe even more worthy Hall of Famers like Scott Rowland, who made it to the Hall of Fame today or was you know, got a ceremony at the Hall of Fame today. He was voted in a while ago. That's what matters, and that's what draws in more representative players to baseball's sacred hall as opposed to just the guys everybody remembers, I guess. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number. We're going to take a quick break, just 10 seconds here, and then I'll tell you what we got left here on White Sox Weekly. Live from the Old National Bank State Street Studio, this is WMVP WSAG HD2, Chicago, a good karma brand's radio station. 
This is White Sox Weekly. We're going to hit a quick break. On the other side, we're going to continue talking about the Hall of Fame. Haven't even gotten to Scott Rowland yet. Ron on the south side is on hold. So when Ron calls, either I've said something very stupid or have touched on something very smart. I'm hoping it's the second thing, but it is always good talking baseball with Ron on the south side. We'll do all of that next. It's the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Get weird with Waddle's World on ESPN Chicago. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. You can join us next Saturday, July 29, for a pregame Sox Crawl Day Party presented by Vizzy Heart Seltzer. Enjoy the summer vibes, Sox baseball, and a party in the outfield with live entertainment from our Sox DJ. This crawl features food and beverage, happy hour specials, exclusive co-branded sunglasses, and more to purchase tickets. Visit whitesocks.com slash crawl. We have talked about the Hall of Fame here on the show. It is Hall of Fame induction weekend, and that means we've either said smart things or stupid things, because that's what the Hall of Fame does to people. Always smart and on the south side, it's Ron on White Sox Weekly. What's up, Ron? Kind of always enjoy listening to you and talking baseball with you. Always. Now, you know, I'm a 50-year White Sox fan, but, but anyone that loves the game, you have to appreciate Pat Hughes. I mean, just simply one of the best. And I listen to him, the Sox and I on, because I love the game. And he just simply, he simply tells the story. And each day, the story is different. And he tells it different. So I had to point out. Now, I'm glad that you mentioned Mark Burley because a few years back I looked at his numbers. Now, it's a lot of criteria you, that you look at with the Hall of Fame. But one of the things you have to see, was he ever the best at his position, no matter what that position? And, and see, you mentioned it. Mark Burley came in the Cy Young voting, what, in fifth place like one time. Yeah, 2005. He's, so. So that's, I mean, so he was never just the the dominant pitcher of the American League. And all the other things are good, but I'm glad you mentioned that. That's why, and I can't agree with you also. You said he was just a very, very um, good pitcher, very reliable. But Hall of Fame, that's the, and that's an important criteria, where you the best. And if he had maybe came in second or third, kind of, so... Those are my comments. Have a good evening. Always a pleasure. Ron, always great talking with you, my man. Yeah, I'm looking at the baseball reference page, and I, you know, it's, it's difficult to explain Jaws uh, in, in this kind of, even in the next 40 minutes that we've got, but it's, it's, um, it's Jay Jaffe of Fangraph's kind of estimation of a player's seven-year peak, and there's a lot of reasons as to why uh, he chooses that and uses that to evaluate Hall of Fame careers. But Mark Burley does kind of fall short of some of the wins above replacement numbers. Not that that's everything, not by any stretch, but falls short of some of the wins above replacement numbers that you used to see. For instance, a 59 career wins above replacement, the average Hall of Fame pitcher has a 73 career wins above replacement. So it would be uh, quite a bit below the average Hall of Fame pitcher. Not that you have to be you know, at 100 or whatever, but you know, you'd like to be a little bit closer to the average, I, I guess. The seven-year peak, though, 49.9, that's the jaw score. That's the average Hall of Fame pitcher's jaw score, 49.9. Burley's at 35.8, and that's kind of that same distance away from the average. I think the argument that Ozzie made uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when I was in the dugout with him and the rest of the beat reporters, does 
carry merit, though, and I think it's an argument worth having because we're going to see more changes in this game, when it, especially when it comes to pitching, than we are fewer. That's for sure. You want to hop on the show? Feel free. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number. we got some White Sox weekly left to go with a pregame show coming up at 540, so that's quickly approaching. Run Your Socks Off is back. Join us at Guaranteed Rate Field Saturday, August 5th for the Run Your Socks Off 5K presented by Planet Fitness. Racers will cross the on-field finish line and can head up to the concourse to enjoy a post-race party. All net proceeds benefit White Sox charities. Learn more at whitesox.com slash run. Promised you a little conversation about Scott Rowland, third base, and the Hall of Fame. That was this weekend. We'll get to that on the other side. It's the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Follow Chicago's Home for Sports on Twitch. ESPN 1000 Chicago. This is White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. White Sox and Twins coming up with a 540 pregame show and a 615 first pitch in Minneapolis. Run Your Socks Off is back. Join us at Guaranteed Rate Field Saturday, August 5th for the Run Your Socks Off 5K presented by Planet Fitness. Racers will cross the on-field finish line and head up to the concourse to enjoy a post-race party. All net proceeds benefit White Sox charities, so great causes. Learn more at whitesox.com slash run. Been talking about the Hall of Fame a little bit today as this is induction weekend. We talked about everybody who has made it in except for, at this point, Scott Rowland. There's a good piece by Mike Petriello on MLB.com back when Roland was uh, announced as a candidate and was making his push for it. You may know that third basemen just don't really get elected to the Hall of Fame. It's very difficult. There have only been, now with Roland, 18 third basemen on the Hall of Fame website. Yes, there are players who started at third and moved over to first base. Paul Canerco started at third and moved over to first. And that's kind of instructive here about what happens to guys who are really good over at third base, you know, really good hitters. Mostly, they move off a third. So Roland's ability to play that position as gold glove caliber all the way through the end of his career at age 37 in 2012 with the Cincinnati Reds is instructive as to why he made the Hall of Fame. He was a Rookie of the Year, won the 2006 World Series, a Silver Slugger, eight-time Gold Glover, and a seven-time All-Star. Here are the notes on third baseman in the Hall of Fame. Of the 18 in the Hall of Fame now with Scott Rowland, six of them were born in the 19th century. Twelve of them were born before World War II. Sixteen of them were born before 1960. Three of them never played in the AL or NL. Negro League stars Ray Dandridge, Judy Johnson, and Judd Wilson are the three players in the Hall of Fame that did not get a chance to play in the AL or NL. More than half, nine of them, were elected by various secondary committees, not the regular annual BBWAA, that's the Baseball Writers Association of America ballot. Only Chipper Jones was born, born in 1972, was born in the last six decades. Scott Rowland joins him. This is just a position where guys essentially get moved off the spot if they're really good at hitting. The demands of third base physically are high, and Scott Rowland being able to, at the for nothing else, take the wear and tear of that particular spot. Shoot, White Sox fans are well aware. You know they've had a lot of third basemen, whether it's Joe Creedy in the past, just have issues with the back. Bill Melton too. You know, guy, it is that is a tough spot defensively to play every day and Roland did it he is in the Hall of Fame and should have been a long time ago but he's in there now 
312-332-3776. That's the phone number. we got more White Sox Weekly to come. We'll talk about this starting pitch up, pitching matchup. Dylan Cease and Sonny Gray, they're the starters for the White Sox and Twins. We'll get into that next on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Greeny, 10 to noon weekdays, ESPN Chicago. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. we got the White Sox and Twins coming up in just about an hour. It's a 6-15 scheduled first pitch for Dylan Cease against Sonny Gray. You can bring your family to a White Sox game with a family pack presented by ExxonMobil. Starting at $19, you'll get one ticket, one hot dog, one drink, and one bag of chips to select games. For tickets, visit WhiteSox.com slash family. It's a pretty good deal. You pile those up. you got a whole bunch of hot dogs, a whole bunch of tickets, and a whole bunch of chips, which DJ loves. So if you're not into all the bags of chips, you get them anyway. Just chuck them up to the radio booth, and DJ will eat the chips. That's his favorite food. Don't tell him I told you that, though, because he hates it. When, uh, when people know things about him. Ah, it's weird like that. Dylan Cease and Sonny Gray are the starters this evening for the White Sox and Twins, respectively. And, I, you know, some interesting trends here with these two. The Twins have gotten some really good pitching from their starting five and from the bullpen uh, for the most part this season. Although, coming out of the break... They've been a little bit wobbly, and we saw that last night with Joe Ryan, too. He had stretches of dominance, and he certainly found pockets of the White Sox lineup to exploit. We had Jake Berger on the show earlier, and he was pretty upfront about the tough night, four strikeouts he had against Joe Ryan last night. Uh, Not all of them against Joe, just three of them. But an elevated fastball for Ryan gets him a lot of swings and misses. Still, the Sox got to him for four runs in six innings. He struck out ten and walked one. That's a fine start, but it's not the kind of level that he or Sonny Gray had been used to before the All-Star break. Sonny Gray, in 17 starts prior to uh, July, pardon, 16 starts prior to July, had thrown 87 and two-thirds innings with a 2.67 ERA. He started July with a really good outing against the Baltimore Orioles, six unearned, six shutout innings, seven strikeouts. His last two, the one before the break and the first one out of the break against the Orioles and Mariners, respectively, have been rough, bad even. Six innings, six earned, with three walks and five strikeouts against the Orioles. No home runs allowed. Five and two-thirds, five runs allowed. Four walks, five strikeouts against the Mariners. No home runs allowed. So it's kind of a you know contact-heavy sort of thing for Sonny Gray. We've seen, I think White Sox fans will remember, we've seen him be really good at times. And this year, he has been exceptional at limiting home runs. He's only given up three homers in 19 starts. All of them came in the month of June. One against Cleveland in June on June 3rd, one against Boston, one against Atlanta. Other than that, no home runs. That's wild in this day and age. But strikeout number has been good. He's been hit around a little bit in his last two. Hopefully the White Sox were able to work a patient approach against Sonny Gray because it looks like command's been a little less than what it's been over the first half of the season. Dylan Cease has been really good in his last eight outings. A 3-2 ERA with a batting average against at 234. 61 strikeouts in 45 innings of work, 16 walks, which isn't great but also isn't terrible, four home runs allowed in that stretch. He has not allowed more than one home run in a start all year long. 
that's absolutely a good thing. When you start giving up multiple home runs, it gets tougher and tougher to win ball games. The outing that was uh, a little rough for him in the last two months was the six-inning outing where he gave up 11 hits to the Cardinals. It was his final start before the break. Five earned, eight strikeouts, no walks, though. So it's kind of that, you know, in the strike zone a lot and perhaps to his detriment against the Cardinals. Uh, you, you want Dylan to bring the walk total down, uh, but you also want to be sh- throwing sharp strikes. He looked pretty good against the Braves. His first start out of the break had to battle a little bit, but did so effectively against a very, very, very good Braves lineup uh, on July 16th. So Dylan Cease gets the start for the White Sox. We've uh, I've got a couple more things I want to do here before the end of the show. We talked a lot about the Hall of Fame here. It's it's Hall of Fame induction weekend, um, and I, I mentioned the Scott Rowland stuff, the third base stuff. Uh, I think I've yeah I know I've rounded out the class for you. Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff going into the Hall of Fame and the award winners this year. Uh, Carl Erskine, longtime Tigers beat writer John Lowe, and Cubs play-by-play man Pat Hughes. Yeah, so that's all of them. We're all set there. Uh, on the other side of a quick break. I want to talk just a little bit about the trade deadline, about some rumors that have some White Sox names in them, uh, one of them that I think is an interesting one, and one of them I heard earlier this week that sounds absolutely preposterous and got way more steam than it needed to. We'll do that when we come back. It's White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Free award information, visit jdpower.com awards. The ESPN Chicago Triple Play AM, FM, HD, and app. little bit here on White Sox Weekly before we begin the pregame show for the White Sox and Twins game two of this three-game series, the final trip to Minneapolis for the White Sox this weekend. One more meeting between these two teams. Of course, that's guaranteed rate field a little bit later on in the year. A lot of divisional play this weekend and next. Three against the Twins, off day Monday, Two against the Cubs at guaranteed right field, and then four against the Cleveland Guardians leading up to the end of the month. July 31st, final day of the month, is an off day for the White Sox. It's a Monday, and then Tuesday, August 1st, is Major League Baseball's trade deadline. Cold showed you before the break, there were a couple of uh, of trade rumors I wanted to address, talk about just a little bit here as we end the show. It is, after all, after the Hall of Fame voting is done, after the draft is over, the biggest part of conversation as we get into the playoffs. We'll do that in just a second. Uh, but if you want to bring your family to a White Sox game with a family pack presented by ExxonMobil, you can do so starting at 19 bucks. You'll get one ticket, one hot dog, one drinks, one bag of chips to select games. For tickets, visit whitesox.com slash family. So earlier this week, I was uh, was guesting on, on some of the shows on ESPN 1000 on our flagship station, and there was a, a trade rumor that had been floating about, mostly on Twitter. And I don't... I don't want to bag whoever had the rumor or whatever reporter had the, the kind of stuff, but it was kind of centering around this idea that there was momentum building for the Astros, of all teams, uh, to trade for Dylan Cease and Luis Robert Jr. And I, like many White Sox fans, uh, saw it pretty quickly and dismissed it as something that was kind of fantastical and not at all grounded in reality. There's a couple of different reasons for that. One obviously, and this is, I think, less important, but one, obviously, is in order to recoup any the kind of talent that you want to for Luis Robert and Dylan Cease in the same trade, that's like half your system plus a major league guy or two? 
I, I just I didn't see it as realistic then. I, I don't see it as realistic now, and I think many people have pointed it out for exactly that. The other part of this, and it's how we kind of started the show earlier today, is you look around the AL Central, you look around what this White Sox team has been capable of recently, disappointing outcomes notwithstanding. You're seeing Tim Anderson get back to being Tim Anderson. You're seeing what Andrew Benintendi can do for you at the top of the lineup the last two months. I mean, at the very top, right? Since the wrist issue was pretty clearly subsided, maybe not all the way, but enough to put up an average close to 300 over the last month or so. Yeah, you start to see that guy. You would like to see more from Eloy Jimenez. You'd like to see him be healthier. You'd like to see more from Andrew Vaughn. You'd like to see him be healthier. Although, granted, fouling a ball off your foot and being in a walking boot, mostly for comfort and not for structural reasons, is less your fault than anything else. I mean, it's just kind of the bad breaks of baseball. But still, You could see a little bit more from Vaughn, for sure. You could see a little bit more from Jimenez, for sure. Well, you get those things, and even if you you haven't, you've kind of, as an offense, been able to hang around in this AL Central. Hanging around's not enough, though. Winning it was where you wanted to be. That was the stated goal of this franchise, when they started this season, uh, when they started last season and the season before that, right? These expectations are there. Rickon has not relented on that. Neither is Kenny Williams when he's spoken. Neither is Pedro Grafal and the coaching staff, right? Those expectations are still there. And sure, given the 41 and 58 records, 17 games under, those expectations have likely changed some. And the approach of the ball club heading into the deadline is, I would guess, more than likely, looking at moving some players off the roster that have expiring contracts in order to recoup some value and make a push for 2024. That's what happens in these situations. It's not a secret. It's, it's, not, it's not, you know, state secrets or trade stuff or anything like that. It's, it's making trades in order to, you know, get a better ball club together. Now, there are options, too, for the White Sox to trade and kind of improve their roster some. And a lot of them uh, start with, or at least rumor-wise, start with Lucas Giolito. And that hurts a little bit. Lucas has been nothing but great to cover and fun to watch pitch since 2019. You know, the no-hitter, uh, being the ace of the staff for a little while, the, the start against the A's in the playoffs in 2020. The guy is a consummate pro. That should probably be said first in any conversation here. He's an expiring contract, though, or at least the command, uh, the control, rather, team control, expires and he's a pending free agent those are the kind of guys that get moved and there was a report by john morosi of mlb.com yesterday that had the diamondbacks interested in lucas giolito now the diamondbacks for those who are a little bit more al centric than nl centered have zach gallon pushing for an nl cy young award at the top of their rotation and merrill kelly who is a very good number two starter they have really been searching for a third guy in that rotation and As you kind of think about the places that need starting pitching, right, some of the contenders who are pushing for it, you think about the Texas Rangers, the Baltimore Orioles for sure could use some starting pitching. You know, those kinds of teams would be adding Lucas as, if not the one, perhaps, in Baltimore, then then a two and and maybe even a three with a chance to kind of feel like a two. I you know the the one two three four and five thing in a starting rotation is a little bit played out, but it's it's useful in terms of a, a thumbnail ten thousand foot view sort of thing. With the Diamondbacks, 
you know, they're, they'd be picturing, you know, any starter they bring in almost as a solid number three, a guy to throw in that third playoff game, uh, regardless of what series you're in or who you're facing. And if that's what they're able to do, if that's who they're able to, you could do a lot worse than Lucas Giolito is that guy in part of that rotation. Now, again, these are rumors, and, and it's too early to start thinking about what could come back or who might even be leaving. For that matter, the White Sox could hang on to Lucas Giolito if, if you're not seeing the trade offers you'd like to see, or maybe you do want to work out a long-term extension, or maybe you want to work on the qualifying offer. That's something the White Sox can extend, and if Lucas is willing to take that or uh, work with a long-term contract prior to issuing the qualifying offer, there's you know ways to recoup some value there if, if the relationship doesn't continue on. And for my part, I hope it does. But those options are available to the, to the ball club. And because of that... The White Sox have a little bit more leverage than other situations, trade leverage, I mean, than situations where a guy is just going to be a free agent, right? They've got more options than just a guy that's absolutely headed out to the marketplace after next season. So for that reason, I, I thought this trade rumor was a little bit more interesting and based in reality than the other one, and that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up here on White Sox Weekly. It'll be... You know, a big-time topic of conversation over the next week and into the final week of July. It's it's going to be where things are centered. It's going to be where things are are focused. Uh, and I I get it. That's the virtue, or that's the um, that's the reality of being 17 games under. It's the reality of being uh, as far back as the White Sox are in this division. Here's hoping they can make some noise against the Twins the rest of this weekend, against the Guardians at home at Guaranteed Rate Field to close the week. It would certainly be better than not. That's for sure. That's going to do it for us here on White Sox Weekly. We are quickly coming to the start of the White Sox pregame show in just a couple of minutes. The 540 start there. 615 first pitch. For the White Sox and Twins, a huge thank you to Jake Cantu and Brendan Riley for producing this show. they got to get to work on the pregame show just like I do. So we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back in a couple of minutes and get you all set for first pitch between the White Sox and Twins. I'm Connor, and this is White Sox Weekly on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Accidents happen. Cars can be fixed and replaced. But what about you? Who's looking out for your damage?